Good morning. I want to talk to you today about when hope is not here. And to suggest that hope, to wait, to hope, to wait, to endure, and to trust, give us four actions to nurture a healthy spirit. Stuff happens. There are times in just about everybody's life when things fall apart and hopes are dashed. There are times in every community's life when things go wrong and cherished dreams are burst. A delightful bubble one moment, a soggy mess the next. There are times in the life of every nation when lofty aims and ambitions come crashing down in the face of disasters and dissensions and destructive forces of many kinds. And today, the people of Syria and Iran are facing the kinds of pressures that confronted the Jewish people in the 6th century before the Common Era. So the passage that was just read from Lamentations was created in a season of suffering, a time for weeping and wailing. The Babylonian army had destroyed Jerusalem, ransacked the surrounding territories, the great temple built by Solomon, the focal point of Jewish spirituality, was desecrated. Its priests put to the sword, its treasures away. Countless innocent people lost their lives, and like a scene out of poster Quake Nepal, the places where they lived were reduced to rubble. And then it got worse. Many of the survivors, including the best and the brightest, were forced marched into exile, into captivity in a foreign land. I don't want to make light of their plight, but perhaps it might help us to imagine a city full of true blue Winnipeggers witnessing the pillaging of Portage and Maine, watching the wanton destruction of dismantling of the legislature building with the golden boy being trucked away, long lines of our citizens being marched in chains to Regina in November, forced to wear watermelons on our heads and cheer for the riders. Friends, the situation in Judah at the time of Jeremiah was worse than that. Much, much worse. The Book of Lamentations was written in this time when the world, as people knew it, was turned upside down. When the bad guys appeared to have won, when the God they served appeared to be ineffective, when life as they knew it was over. This is a book of laments. It mourns the loss of a homeland and a religious center. And more than that, it posits the possibility that God either does not exist or that God does not care. This is a bleak book. 
it finds little to look forward to. The hopes of God's people have been shattered like bottles dashed against boulders. Tears ran like rain. A similarly, similarly pervasive pessimism is evoked in William Butler Yeats' a well-known poem, The Second Coming. And written in the aftermath of World War One, Yeats observes how things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Times were as bad as they can get. Innocence defiled. Violence in charge. Homes and workplaces lost. God apparently gone. The good guys couldn't come through. Evil flourished. Discouragement prevailed. And hope disappeared. The Book of Lamentations contains five chapters, each of which is poetically constructed. It begins on a sad note. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. And it ends in perplexity and despair. The last verses are, why have you forgotten us completely? Why have you forsaken us so many days? Restore us yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. To contemplate the prospect that God was angry and punitive was preferable to the despairing thought that God did not exist. For people whose culture and identity were based on the blessing and uh, leading of God, there could be no greater loss. The rebuke of God, lamentation suggests, may be a more tolerable concept than the absence of God. And yet, strangely, smack dab in the middle of the book, central perhaps to its message, are these few verses of abounding hope and expressions of trust. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Hope will find a way. But it's not an easy way, as the following verses make clear. The summons to hope is followed immediately by a call for patience. Wait, it says. Hang in there. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation. Waiting is hard. The 
especially in an instant gratification society such as ours, the idea of being obliged to wait for a remedy, or an answer, or information, or an explanation, is considered intolerable. We do not easily cotton to the notion that God's goodness takes time to appreciate. We want a favorable resolution right now. So I don't know what to do with this verse except to say that it's there. In Holy Scripture, at the heart of this ancient worshiping community's agonizing ordeal is this comforting and confounding idea that the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him, that it is good that one should wait quiet for the salvation of the Lord. I know some people who demonstrate great patience. It's my privilege to serve as board chair of a faith-based charity called Initiatives for Just Communities. It's a restorative justice organization that exists to come alongside some of the most marginalized people in Canadian society and to encourage their integration into healthy communities. Initiatives for Just Communities works with prisoners and ex-prisoners at high risk to reoffend, with people with mental disabilities who've been in trouble with the law, and with adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. These are some of the most distressed people living in some of the most distressing circumstances imaginable. They are both victims and offenders. Positive change does not come easily in their lives. It takes long, patient, loving interaction to gain their trust and to begin to encourage healthier patterns of living. Success is measured in minute increments. Consider this excerpt from the annual report from Touchstone, the program that works with people with FASD. During this past year, Touchstone employees have walked with our participants through many difficult stories. Five have experienced homelessness. Five have reached the age of majority. And two of those have graduated to adulthood, losing all supports, funding, and health. Five of our participants are parents. Three of these parents have had children apprehended in years gone by, while all still experience child and family services involvement. Seven have experienced significant sexual or domestic abuse in the last year. At least 12 use substances regularly to dull the pain. At least two regularly engage in survival sex to survive. Thirteen have indicated at one point or more that they want to give up and it would be easier not to live. And at least eleven have been children in care at one point growing up. The happier story is that only one participant was incarcerated this year. No one committed suicide. Each one has leaned heavily on touchstone for support when it was needed. Most have been able to collect regular food from Touchstone's new food bank depot, and all but one are currently living under 
after day, month after month, year after year, outreach workers interact with people on the edge in an effort to help individuals and communities be healthier. Hope is hard to come by. It takes incredible commitment, tremendous patience, and endurance. The next set of verses in our passage is about accepting adversity as aspects of God's good intentions. This is hard to swallow. Are people of faith really expected to endure humiliation and denigration? Is it really good, as the text says, to bear the yoke and to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it? Or to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults? Is this good? These are the experiences of captives, of exiles, of people displaced from all that they hold dear. They are victims of exploitation. Can anything good emerge from circumstances like that? It brings to mind Amanda Lindhout. Amanda is the freelance journalist from Red Deer who was captured by a militia group in Somalia in 2008. To say that she endured an ordeal is to understate what happened. Her captors were young and cruel. She was held in a dark and dismal bondage, repeatedly tortured and raped. This went on and on. After 460 days as a hostage, she was eventually released. She was able to return to Canada and has published a memoir carved out a career as a humanitarian and become a much sought after speaker on the topics of social responsibility and women's rights, and get this, on forgiveness and compassion. How did she endure? I haven't read her book, and I don't really know from where she drew her strength. But if her career and attitude since her release are any indication, it didn't come from detachment. Rather, she remains deeply engaged and caring. Endurance does not mean steely unfeeling. It does not mean denying pain or stifling emotion. Endurance means living with hope, even when the circumstances don't seem to warrant it. Endurance means hewing to the notion that something bright may yet illuminate this present darkness. Amanda was in the news again a couple of months ago. She received a phone call from the RCMP who asked first if she was sitting down. She said she was, but apparently that wasn't quite true. The Mounties were calling to inform her that they had captured the man who had been the leader in the group that had put her through so much pain. That news came out of the blue and Amanda collapsed to the floor. She wept when she heard this. 
when she heard that her former tormentor had been arrested. Well, good for her. Crying makes perfect sense in her situation. The unanticipated update from a traumatic past is certain to release a surge of feelings and memories and to resurface elements of a terribly trying time. An emotional and physical response is both healthy and welcome. Indeed, it is profoundly human. And that's why this former editor bristled when a newspaper headline heralded how she had been reduced to tears. I can be picky about words. Reduced? I think not. Tears are truth tellers. When sensitive areas of a person's life are exposed, tears are nature's way of acknowledging the interior wound. And though they spring from hurt and sorrow, they arrive with healing power. Tears give a name to the pain and release to the underlying distress. They serve a therapeutic purpose, and to stifle tears is to deny opportunities for deep healing. Tears are not weakness. They are liquid hope. Tears are brave. Tears face back. Tears like these reveal a compassionate element our humanity. Amanda endured an inhumane experience and managed to maintain her humanity. And something good has emerged. A hopeful and compassionate vision with forgiveness at its heart. A message that she can speak with deep, with hard-earned authenticity. Hope in our passage affirm how the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. It's one thing to make a statement like that when things are going well. And it's quite another to give lip service to the idea that God is loving and compassionate when the world is falling apart. And it's quite another thing yet to live confidently with the expectation that God will not reject forever, that God's love will prevail, that God does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Does what we profess to believe truly reflect where our confidence It's quite okay to wrestle with these things. As human beings, our confidence is apt to shove about like a battery. Inner wavering happens to the best among us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a brilliant young theologian in 1930s Germany who lamented the church's complicity in Hitler's agenda. He chose to stay in Germany during the war in order to oppose the dehumanizing Nazi regime. Not 
Not surprisingly, he ended up in a Nazi jail from where he carried on a robust correspondence and writing ministry. His book, The Cost of Discipleship, has been a staple of Bible school and seminary curricula for decades. And his story is both tragic and inspiring. Yet today, I want only to share a poem that this brilliant, confident, faithful, patient, and durable young man wrote while in prison. It's called, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me I stepped from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune equally, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really all that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless and longing and sick like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptibly woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Hope, wait, endure, for actions to nurture a healthy spirit. Shall we pray? Almighty God, we look to you for mercy. Feed us with your everlasting hope. Sustain us in the seasons of waiting. Empower us with your spirit in those times when we simply must endure. Build in us a capacity to trust that you are indeed faithful, that your steadfast love does indeed endure forever. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.